You know, it, 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 there was part of me that didn't want to do it, but um, I think as my mom's illness progressed, but it just shocked me that my beautiful brainy mother uh, in her late 50s was starting to cognitively crumble. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of 10 Thoughts, Countdown to the Longest Day. I'm your host, Anushka Nori. This week's guest speaker is Miss Anne Hadrine, the author of Her Beautiful Brain. In this episode, we'll learn more about the writing process and inspiration behind Her Beautiful Brain, and we'll have the opportunity to explore other exciting aspects of Miss Hadrine's career. Make sure to stay till the end of the episode to hear some valuable advice for younger generations and for those who have loved ones suffering from Alzheimer's. Thank you again to Miss Hadrine for her support in our podcast series. If you don't mind, uh, I'd like to start by introducing you to our listeners. Okay. Awesome. Um, so our guest speaker today is Miss Anne Hadrine, a writer, filmmaker, and teacher. Her first memoir, Her Beautiful Brain, won a 2016 Next Generation Indie Book Award. Her blog, The Restless Nest, won an honorable mention from the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. Her various filmmaking honors include many Emmys. Miss Hadrine teaches memoir writing at the Seattle Central College, Hugo House, and elsewhere. Her writing has appeared in the About Place Journal, Third Act Magazine, Patheos, Persimmon Tree, The Seattle Times, uh, Seattle Met Magazine, Minerva Rising, and other publications. Miss Adrienne earned her MFA in creative writing at the Goddard College and her BA at Wellesley College. Uh, she spent a year as a visiting student at the University of East East Anglia in Norwich, England, and is an alumna of the Hedgewick Center for Women Writers. Miss Hadrian is a frequent speaker on writing, memoir, memory, faith, and doubt. Miss Hadrian, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. jump right into the questions. Uh, Miss Hadrine, you authored Her Beautiful Brain, a mm -hmm. memoir about your transition into motherhood while your mother battled with early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind sharing your family's story with the world? You know, it, 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 it there was part of me that didn't want to do it, but um, I think as my mom's illness progressed, uh, I, I began to well, it's interesting. As I tell my writing students, I began to feel different kinds of anger, believe it or not. Um, I was angry at the illness, which was kind of a useless kind of anger. Um, there's not much you can do, you know, about Alzheimer's. You can't make it go away. Um, but it just shocked me that my beautiful brainy mother uh, in her late 50s was starting to cognitively crumble um, I, I just couldn't believe that that was her fate. Uh, you know, she was someone who could quote Shakespeare at will to her high school students, etc. She raised six kids, uh, mostly as a single mom. Um, so there was that sort of 
a visceral brainstem kind of irrational anger that I was trying to deal with. And then there was also this other type of anger <laughs> that had to do with what I felt was um, people taking a kind of, oh, Alzheimer's isn't so bad if you just kind of roll with it approach. And well, I, I must emphasize, I've got a lot of um, respect for that. And I understand that when someone gets dementia, you just need to be in their space with them and, and uh, appreciate the now, appreciate the moment, do that Zen thing. Um, I get that. However, uh, it glosses over how difficult and scary this disease is for the people who have it, uh, especially for people like my mom who have younger onset Alzheimer's. They don't think of themselves as old enough to have dementia you know, and so it comes as a shock when they get either that diagnosis or in my mom's case in the early nineties, that sort of probable diagnosis because people weren't doing so many PET scans then. Um, so I was, I was angry about that. And I kind of wanted to speak for people who had Alzheimer's, but couldn't speak for themselves about what it was really like. So there were those. And then thirdly, it was during the Bush era and, um, if I'm going to tread into politics just a tiny bit, um, he made the decision not to fund um, stem cell research, which at that time in the early 2000s was considered uh, something that could be very helpful in learning more about how diseases like Alzheimer's work. And that made me angry and <laughs> angry, angry, angry. And here I am, you know, a good Scandinavian. I'm not supposed to ever get angry. Um, but, uh, but I'm also a journalist. And so I fired off this op-ed to uh, the Seattle PI, which was then a print publication, and it was printed. And the reaction I got from people, um, from friends, but also from strangers, made me realize that people, um, you know, people understood what I was talking about and that there was a lot more that maybe I could say. So that was the beginning. And then my husband and I actually made a film about Alzheimer's um, in, in starring my mom, so to speak. Um, and in the course of making that film, I got involved in Alzheimer's research at the University of Washington Alzheimer's Research Center. And we filmed that and talked to the doctors. And but when we were done, and that was all very satisfying and it, it had a long life on PBS stations, et cetera. But after that, I just felt like okay, what I haven't really done is told my mom's remarkable story. And, and I, I think I want to write that. I want it to be a book um, because there's just so much to say about her and about uh, how this disease affected our family. And so that's what motivated me to begin writing. That's a really long answer. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely relate to how some aspects of like Alzheimer's and dementia or PSP, right, are just glossed over. And sometimes they aren't acknowledged for how scary they really are. Um, yeah. Like, for example, I think that my, I'm not old enough to remember my grandmother when she was walking. But um, I remember that my older brother, who can remember just a little bit, um, used to say how she used to talk and she was the best grandma and she used to walk around everywhere and do everything with him. And just having like losing that and having the fear of being, I'm losing that experience with my loved ones is just so terrifying. So um, I think that 
what you've written definitely resonates with a lot of you know loved ones and those suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. Could you share what the writing experience was like? Were there certain chapters that were more difficult to write than others? Um, sure. I, um, I, I knew that I couldn't write in total isolation because it is a difficult subject. And I also wanted to get an MFA in creative writing because I was becoming interested in teaching. And our, my husband and I were busy by day doing filmmaking for nonprofits, which is uh, our you know, primary bread and butter. But I found out about this um, uh, low residency MFA program where you just go once a semester for an intensive eight to 10 days. And then during the rest of the semester, you work remotely with your advisor. And I thought, well, that's, that's going to work for me. I can do that. I'll write my book and I'll also, you know, have a teaching practicum and learn lots and lots. And so that's, that, that's how I began writing. I had, I had done a lot of scribbling, but I, I got into this program and started working with an advisor and, and, uh, and that was very, very helpful. And at first I said, oh, well, I think I might write a, I think I might fictionalize this. And he said, no, you know, I've been listening to you. I think you want and need to write a memoir <laughs> and you can write it in your, your voice, your journalistic voice. Stop trying to write like a novelist because that's not who you are. Your writing can be poetic, but really you're coming from this place of being a, a nonfiction writer. So, so that's how I got started. But um, yes, it was very difficult at times. And, you know, my students uh, often want to talk about this. How do you write the tough stuff and survive that process of writing? And there are a couple things I tell them, which were very true for me. One is, you know, you have all this stuff just kind of weighing on your heart in your soul. And if you take it from here, I'm gesturing to my, you know, heart and soul here um, and, uh, and put it out onto the page, it lightens that load. It, it, it truly does. It's still there. It's not like you can make the sadness go away and frankly, nor would you want to, you know, I mean, a person you love deserves to always be mourned. Um, but that person that you love also does want you to live your life. Right. And, and I, I, that's the other thing too. I knew that the, my mom's personality was such that she, she would want me to share her story if it might help other people. You know, I knew that that she would not be opposed to that, or I felt that she, she would not be. Um, but there were times when, when I was literally um, crying <laughs> when I wrote certain passages. And, uh, and so that's the other thing I tell my, my uh, beginning writers is um, have have a plan for the afternoon you're going to write that scene. Make sure you have a plan to, um, in my case, you know, have dinner with your your husband and your son, you know, afterwards. Or you know, if if you're not married, make sure you have a friend that you might call or go see, or you know, just uh, just take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, and if you're sitting there and the words really are are just not wanting to, then you go into the kindergarten mode of taking care of yourself. You say, okay, I'm going to write a page and then I'm going to go get a cookie and a cup of coffee <laughs> and then I'll come back. I mean, sometimes you have to break it down like that. <laughs> That's some pretty amazing advice. Um, I think that, yes, uh, part of why um, 
my brother and I started Gentle Generations was because my grandmother was that type of person who was, if my story can help, then go ahead. It's for everyone to listen to, which I think, I think is definitely something that's pretty admirable. I think that that like sort of bravery that it takes for both the person with the disease and those that are surrounding them to just say that here's my story and who else can just say like, I've had that same experience. So, um, I commend you and your mother um, for having the bravery to do that. I was wondering if you could uh, describe your involvement with the um, community of caregivers and loved ones um, who support those with Alzheimer's. I um, I've been involved in different ways with uh, the Alzheimer's Association for many years. Um, I I'm on their marketing and communications committee, and I done walks and other kinds of volunteering. My husband and I have also done some filmmaking um, uh, for the association. And um, uh, and then this last year, I, I got involved myself in the, the longest day in um, 2020. I decided, ah, I know what I'm going to do during this pandemic when I you know, have to mostly be at home. I'm going to record an audio version of her beautiful brain. So I did that and, uh, and researched and found a way to now it's on all the audio platforms, you know, audible, whatever you like. Um, but that was very satisfying to me. I really, it was a good project and it raised a little money for the association. And then in, in, uh, um, December of 2020, I did a sort of, um, you know, uh, all morning write in, write hyphen in, um, for people who, uh, wanted to support the Alzheimer's Association and maybe wanted to write something. In, in fact, everyone wanted to write something related to Alzheimer's, although that was not necessary. So I enjoyed that. And that seemed a really great winter activity. I might do that again this December. I also um, have been involved in advocacy, lobbying in Olympia and DC, um, not every year, but most years uh, in the, for the last 10 or so. Um, so all of that is meaningful to me. Staying and staying connected is meaningful. Um, and I, I always urge people to, if they're just starting this crazy journey to contact the Alzheimer's association and first thing first, uh, get into a support group. I mean, that was something that we did way back in the day. Um, my mom, one of my sisters and I, um, did a, an Alzheimer's support group for several weeks. And that was very, very helpful. Well, that actually leads into my next question, which uh, is what advice would you give um, mm -hmm. to those who have um, loved ones suffering from Alzheimer's mm -hmm. or another form of dementia? Um, you <laughs> call the association and get into a support group, but um, you know, in, in, the internet, of course, has changed things because there are so many resources online. Um, but one of my stock bits of advice, because we struggled with this, and I see, I have so many friends now, incidentally, whose parents are in their 80s or even older and are dealing with what I dealt with, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but uh, anyway, the <laughs> it's best summed up as it doesn't matter whether it's Tuesday or not you know, just be there with your um, loved one who has dementia and just don't sweat the details, right? 
be in the moment, um, uh, do things that don't require holding memory and narrative. For example, my mom and I used to love to go to, excuse my cat, sorry, um, <laughs> used to love to go to plays and movies. But that became something that we really couldn't do anymore. So instead, we would go to um, uh, the art museum and look at art. And that turned out to be kind of wonderful. She was an artist. And uh, to stand there and look at a painting, it's not going to go anywhere. You don't have to remember the story. You can just enjoy what's right in front of you. And the Fry Museum, the Fry Art Museum in Seattle, that's centered around that idea of using art and also music, incidentally, um, uh, in therapeutic ways. I wanted to talk a little bit about your work as a filmmaker. Um, you founded White Noise Productions with your husband. Um, when did you decide to go into filmmaking and what has that experience been like? Um, my husband and I founded White Noise Productions. It's around 2000. We had already been doing some work for nonprofits. Um, I was doing media relations for a lot of nonprofits at the time, and he had been working primarily as a, a, the West Coast uh, you know, camera person for CBS and other networks and traveled a lot. And lifestyle was, um, was getting hard with young kids. In other words, um, around that time, it became uh, realistic and cost-effective to um, to edit, to do all our own editing. Um, and that, me that meant that we could work for nonprofit clients. So we've told lots and lots of stories and, and mostly in and around the Northwest and the West, but occasionally we've traveled. We've uh, done quite a bit of work for a Seattle-based nonprofit that uh, works in Latin America um, on micro lending. And that's, you know, I mean, that kind of work has been very fulfilling. Do you have a specific film uh, that was particularly impactful to you or that you, um, I don't know, like the best is not probably the best way to put it because I think that you'll probably like all of your work, but is there one that really stood out to you? Well, in 2004, we produced Quick Brown Fox, uh, an Alzheimer's story, and that's the one about mom. So some of the people who are listening to this podcast might like to know that, to my knowledge, it's still available at the Seattle and King County Public Library, Vimeo on demand. Uh, so easy rental if you're interested. Um, and uh, we also um, produced a film a couple of years ago called Zona Intangible, which is set in Peru and um, was uh, is about a handmade settlement outside Lima um, and the lives of the people there and was inspired actually by another family member. I had a great uncle who lived in Peru for 25 years. Um, and so there's a clinic there named after him, the Clinica Carlos Hadrin, who would have thunk it. Um, so that that is one that's very meaningful to us. Um, we also uh, produced a church on Dauphine Street after uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. The Seattle connection there was uh, 
uh, a church in Seattle was committed to rebuilding this specific uh, church in New Orleans. And so it was this kind of wonderful volunteer connection. So those are a few. Do you have a message for for young people, uh, like the volunteers at Gentle Generations who are passionate about making a difference in the lives of those suffering from Alzheimer's? You know, um, there's something about the smile and presence of a young person that that just can make an old person light up, no matter um, how far along they are in their dementia, um, and no matter you know what kind of physical uh, shape they're in. It's just your presence, um, and even in these pandemic times, your virtual presence. Uh, can really make a difference. Um, and I, I also teach some seniors at a, a local retirement home and we've been, of course, been working virtually during the pandemic uh, on memoir writing. And they're a wonderful group. They have, just have amazing stories to tell, but they were really, really isolated uh, in 2020. I mean, most of the places they lived were on total lockdown and they couldn't even leave their rooms. And imagine that. Imagine, you know, imagine that, especially if you've had the good fortune to live into your 80s or 90s and you've had a full life, you've had a family and all of a sudden you're totally cut off. I mean, I think it's been such a rough year for them. And I think they're all just, um, yeah, hungry for those connections. And I know you and your brother are finding that to be true. Yeah, and I'm just uh, excited that you're you're filling that need. Thank you. Um, actually, one of the things that we do, which I honestly enjoy a lot, is um, we every week, um, every Friday, actually, so tomorrow, um, we read to um, those in senior care facilities, um, which is so much of fun. Um, and I honestly think that they enjoy it a lot, too. Um, and I enjoy reading to them just because the response that I get is always so positive um, and so meaningful. Uh, I think that anyone who has the opportunity to get involved with either, you know, grandparents or even just like the senior care facility in your neighborhood, just like talk, talking to um, the elderly is such an important part, uh, both for young people and for um, those in their late 80s, 90s. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great thing to do. Uh, I also find, you know, when I have, um, sometimes I'll have a class at Seattle Central College where I'll have people as young as 20, it's adult ed, so usually not younger than that, but, um, uh, and then I'll have in the same class, I'll have someone who's 80 plus, and it's just wonderful to see the interchange and to see the interest that they have in each other's stories. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a great fan of this concept of mixing up the generations and, um, you know, it's, I think it's good for all of us. One last question before we uh, close this interview. I wanted to know what the teaching experience has been like for you, um, especially because you just said you've been teaching those who are young and who are, um, you know, into their sixties uh, and seventies. So what has that been like? Um, I, you know, I, when I first started teaching in 2012, I mean, I myself was in my fifties, I'm, I'm 64 now. 
And, uh, um, and I was very nervous about it. I, you know, I just, uh, I, I presented before and I've interviewed lots and lots of people over the course of my life, including famous people, but this was different. You know, this was sort of, um, I, I felt this real responsibility to impart useful information and to encourage people in their journey. But what's interesting, speaking of interviewing is that, you know, I have had a career in which um, the premium has been on listening to people, right? And in teaching memoir writing, I do a lot of listening, you know, uh, either literally in the class or um, as I'm reading someone's manuscript, you know, if you can view reading as sort of a metaphoric form of listening, but, um, and, and it just never stops interesting me. And so if I, if I find that if I just you know, before I, I begin a teaching session, I always just um, tell myself, be in the room, just be present. And, and it's, um, and, you know, be aware of what people need and, and, uh, and just respond. And, and then I'm kind of fine, but I, and I also have a very strong belief that everyone can be a writer, you know, but I have this story I want to tell and I don't know where to start. And it's, it's extremely satisfying to get them started. Thank you for that answer. That brings us to the close of our interview. Uh, do you have any other comments which you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, this has been really fun and I appreciate you're um, you're having me. Uh, there are so many good books out there um, about uh, people's experiences with dementia and Alzheimer's. So I encourage your listeners to sure look up my book, but look up you know others too because they exist. It used to be something that wasn't much written about, let alone talked about, and now it is, and that's good. That's a good thing. Perfect. That was. Amazing. Thank you again for your time, Ms. Hadrine. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to have you on our podcast.